When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. She was, oh, wow. She was amazing. She was my, my best friend that I had. I could trust her. She was super, super bubbly and super kind. Um, just kind to everyone, wanted the best for everyone, wanted the best for me. And just an all-round loving, good, giving person. There are many fond memories of his mum, Maria, in life. But Bengi Stubbings will never forget the way she died and the failings by Essex police that could have saved her. Mark Chivers, a former boyfriend, strangled Maria at her home in Chelmsford five years ago. He hid her body under a pile of coats in the bathroom. When a 15-year-old Bengi returned, Chivers followed him around the house to stop him from finding her. I was never aware which is, makes it more confusing for me because I feel as if I should have known. But being so young and vulnerable when he was such a good manipulator, I'm not sure what I could have done. But if I did know, I could be dead. So I'm grateful that I'm here today. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. This week, I'm joined by very special guest Celia Peachy. Celia is a survivor, campaigner, activist, speaker, transformation coach, and CEO of The Ultimate Alchemist. Celia is sister to Bengi and the daughter of Maria Stubbings, and you'll hear Celia say more about herself throughout the episodes. This interview is in three parts. The reason being is that it's so rich in detailed and thoughtful moments and learning opportunities, as well as WTAF moments, that you'll want to hit pause and go back to certain points to check that you heard right. I want you to think carefully about everything Celia shares, and of course I weigh in with my thoughts, observations and analysis. Also, just to let you know that this interview was recorded when I was still pregnant with my little guy Rafi, so you'll hear mention of that. And we'd not won the campaign regarding serial domestic abusers and stalkers. Yes, that happened on December the 15th, 2021, and I decided to record a separate update on that amazing and hard-fought victory. So be sure to check that out when it lands. It's huge news after 26 years of hard work campaigning and lobbying. But for this episode, and the two after, I want to concentrate on Maria Stubbings, on what happened in the weeks and months prior to her brutal murder, as well as what happened afterwards. I'll start with the usual trigger warning. This is not an easy listen, 
And what you hear will make you angry and you will want to burn the house down. So I'm just throwing that out there now. Now, full disclosure, I've had involvement with this case and ensuring the lessons are learned. You see, Maria's case was one of many cases in Essex. Now, Essex is a county in England policed by Essex Police. You see, a number of women were catastrophically failed. And after a number of murders, I was brought in as an expert advisor to the IPCC, which stands for the Independent Police Complaints Commission. But just to confuse things, they've recently changed their name to the Independent Office for Police Conduct, the IOPC. And you'll hear more about that shortly, as I'm going to tell you about that work specifically and what happened with Essex Police in the wake of all the murders. But I want to tell you about Maria first. When Celia and I discussed her coming on Crime Analyst, I asked Celia about how she wanted to approach talking about what happened to Maria, about the murder itself, as I know it's not easy and it doesn't get any easier even with the passage of time. I did explain to her, however, that it's important to outline what happened. Now, Celia told me that she would find it too traumatic to discuss the murder itself in detail, and so we agreed that I would tell you what happened. And that's the first learning point. If a victim, survivor or family member has to keep retelling what went on, it further traumatises them. So yes, the learning is really important, but we must take care not to re-traumatise victims and their families over and over again. It's always a really careful balancing act. And as I've said throughout this series, the media tend to focus on the homicide event itself and not the events leading up to it. But importantly, murder and violence don't happen in a vacuum. They happen on a continuum. And even the IPCC, when the case was referred to them, didn't focus on the events leading up to Maria's murder and the police conduct, despite it being their remit. Oh, and there's also the matter that a significant number of the details in the first report were inaccurate. The family quite rightly were angry and demanded a secondary investigation and review, which is what happened. More on that later on as that's also important to understand, particularly when understanding Celia and her family's journey and just how traumatic it's been, not just because of her mother being brutally murdered, but due to professionals and the way that they acted following her murder. So this will be a longer introduction than normal. So here are the background details of Maria's case. Maria Stubbings was 50 years old and was living in Chelmsford, Essex with her 15-year-old son, Bengi. She met Mark Chivers in early 2008 whilst walking her dog. Soon after their relationship began, he was violent towards her. Maria reported him to Essex Police. On the 16th of July 2008, Chivers was arrested and remanded in custody for seriously assaulting her. As well as assault, Maria reported that Chivers had sexually assaulted her. Please bear that in mind. However, for that serious assault, the physical assault, he was given a four-month custodial sentence on the 13th of October 2008, but he was released immediately, given his time spent on remand. Now, Maria was unaware that he had only just returned to the UK after serving 15 years in prison in Germany for killing a woman called Sabine Rapold. 
She learned about his murder conviction after he was charged with assaulting her. So having learned his history, and just before Chivers was released from prison, Essex police took the decision to disable an alarm in Maria's home. Subsequently, on his release, no conditions were placed on Chivers and no steps were taken by Essex police to provide protection for Maria. In fact, a multi-agency public protection meeting, known as a MAP, concluded that Chivers did not fall within their remit. Now briefly, a MAP meeting, for those of you who aren't familiar with them, are statutory multi-agency public protection meetings attended by police, prison and probation services, where those offenders who are deemed to be a risk to the public are problem-solved and then risk-managed. Now there are three categories of perpetrators, Category 1, 2 and 3, and historically it's mainly been used for sex offenders, despite the fact that they were set up for violent and sexual offenders. Now the fact that Chivers was deemed not to fall in their remit, despite his history of killing a previous woman and sexually assaulting Maria, is confounding, you might think, and angry-making. But it's exactly why I've been campaigning to ensure that domestic abusers and stalkers are included automatically in these meetings and that women are protected. You see, Maria has been one of the many cases I've cited over the years that show how women are being let down and how the system is not working. And sadly, this is still going on. And so Chivers is released and there was no assessment of the risk that he posed to Maria or her teenage son. In fact, it's even worse than that. No one even visited Maria to review the safety plan, and no actions were taken to try and ensure her protection. On the 3rd of December 2008, Maria's friend Claire Oliver contacted Essex Police to express concerns that Chivers may have assaulted Maria again. Essex Police took no action in response to Claire's call. Maria again contacted Essex Police on the 11th of December 2008. She asked about getting a restraining order. She told the police that Chivers was hanging around her home and that he'd burgled her while she was out and that she was concerned for her safety. She said that Chivers had taken her medication. She contacted police again, twice on the 12th of December. But the report was downgraded from a domestic violence offence involving a very high-risk victim, to a burglary. On the 12th of December, a police officer called Maria to say that they had found Chivers with her son Bengi in his car. Understandably, Maria was very upset. The police officer drove Bengi home, and she told them again that she had reported a burglary to the police. The next day, on the 13th of December, Essex police contacted Maria. She sounded strange on the phone, and the officer believed Chivers might be with her, so they decided to visit her. Police attended her home address in Chelmsford, but Maria didn't let them in the house. In response, they asked her to sign their notebook to say that she didn't want to proceed with the matter, despite the fact that they believed Chivers might be there in the house at the time. They then closed the investigation. This was the last time the police saw her alive. On the 17th of December, a police officer failed to attend the house to check on Maria after being instructed to do so. Finally, an officer from the domestic violence unit became concerned for Maria's safety when she saw Maria's calls about shivers on the police log. Officers were instructed to attend her home, 
and on the 18th of December, Essex police re-attended Maria's home address. They knocked on the front door. Mark Chivers answered. He was wearing trousers and no shirt. He told them that Maria was away. They took no steps against Chivers and they didn't search the property. Instead, they left a calling card with Chivers and asked him to inform Maria that they had called. On the 19th of December 2008, Essex police attended again, this time with explicit instructions to arrest Chivers and search the property. And so it was some eight days later that they did search the property and they found Maria's body in the downstairs bathroom underneath a pile of coats. Maria had been strangled with a dog lead. They arrested Chivers. Maria's son, Bengi, was in the house after her murder with his mother's undiscovered body and her killer. Chivers followed him around to ensure that he didn't discover her body. Chivers was found guilty of her murder in December 2009, and he was sentenced to whole life imprisonment. Now, as I mentioned before, Chivers had killed another woman in 1992 in Germany. Her name was Sabine Rappold. He was arrested in France in 1992 and was imprisoned in 1993 in Germany, and on his release in January 2008, he was deported to the UK. I want to tell you more about that, although not much is known, other than Sabine was his partner, and he'd strangled her to death. Ring any bells? The same M.O., the same modus operandi, the same pattern of behaviour that screams risk, risk, red flag, risk. And past behaviour is the best indicator of future behaviour. Okay, there's a lot more that I could say, and I'm sure your heads are spinning with thoughts and questions and WTAFs. I hope that in your heads or on your notebook, you're jotting down key questions that a good crime analyst and investigator would ask. Like who made the decision to downgrade the call to a burglary and what was it based on? Why wasn't Chivers seen as a high-risk perpetrator? Why did the map not take the case? Why was there no urgency to Maria's desperate calls for help? Why wasn't Chivers's history joined up? Why was his word taken over hers? And why was his word taken at the door, her front door, Maria's front door, when he shouldn't be there, she should have been there? And why did it take eight days to do the basics? And I could go on and on. But I think you get the point. Being curious and asking questions, the right questions are key. Okay, so now I want you to hear from Celia and we get into some of this. So without further ado, here's the amazing Celia Peachy. Hi Celia, how are you doing? Hey Laura, I'm really well, thank you. Good. It's good to see you. And I'm so pleased that we've managed to connect so that you can uh, talk to me and also to all the listeners of Crime Analysts. So do you want to introduce yourself? Hi. Yes. My name is Celia, Celia Peachy. I'm the daughter of Maria Stubbings, who was brutally murdered in 2008, the week before Christmas, by a convicted killer who was known to the police and uh, was sadly grossly failed by them and the system. Since then, I've been a, a keen activist on her behalf and for other women and children, as well as for men to step up and realise that they need to address their their issues because, um, you know, they are sadly predominantly the ones that inflict this pain and are causing the um, 
the damage, sadly. I'm a transformational coach as well. And um, I'm building my own brand, Be Your Ultimate Alchemist or, yeah, Ultimate Alchemist, because I've had to be the ultimate alchemist of my own life and be a pioneer and step into the unknown, you know, let go of the story and craft a life in this moment and use the um, all my experiences to, to live the wisdom of my experience so that I can help other people thrive on the other side of the worst that can happen. Which is amazing. I mean, to turn such a tragedy and catastrophic event round into something that's so positive to help other people. That really is amazing. And I'm so glad you're talking to me today because I think oftentimes people don't think about the aftermath of what happens afterwards, and particularly to the children, when you've got a situation and it was coercive control and stalking and domestic violence. And I'll say a little bit more about what happened because, again, what people don't realise is it's really traumatising if you have to keep describing the what happened but for the children and for the loved ones left behind, it's a legacy, isn't it? And you've been trying to change, use your experience to help others and try and change and ensure it doesn't happen to other women and children and other families. Absolutely. To be honest, I'm, I'm just amazed uh, that it's still happening because it's such, it's so predictable and preventable. I, I, the work that you do is so important to actually shift the focus onto the perpetrator and and prevent so much, as you say, ca- catastrophic events. You know, the fact that my brother is still alive is a miracle after the awful situation that he was put in. He was put in a precarious situation where if things were checked properly, you know, that they did focus on the perpetrator. If they did listen to the PNC report when my brother was found with the man that killed my, my uh, mother, that they would have known what, what kind of character they were dealing with and would have taken extra precautions. However, they didn't listen to a small report that would have said convicted of domestic murder and they would have dealt with that whole situation completely differently. And it's by the grace of God that he's alive today because someone didn't focus on the person in question that was breaking the law or, you know, had previous convictions. And as you have clearly stated, it's a pattern. And this man had a pattern and a history that was logged. So if if things were checked properly, that would have been dealt completely dif- dealt with completely differently. I agree. And I think we spend a lot of time, or I do, and, and others trying to understand why they didn't understand that information, why they didn't understand that Mark Chivers was already a convicted killer and that your mother was terrified and was calling the police for help. And yet, despite the fact she called multiple times, and yes, he did go to prison for an assault on her. I think he spent four months in prison, didn't he, for an assault? That's right, yeah. But he came out and Essex police disabled the alarm in your mother's house and there was no follow-up risk management process for your mum. So when she was still calling the police because he was still contacting her, he was in her home address when the police actually arrived at her home and they just handed her a card saying, please call us without any due concern for her safety, which is incredible, really, just given his previous pattern of behaviour. 
absolutely and even more astounding than that is that when she was actually missing and had been calling for help he was in the house living in the house emptying her bank accounts selling our Christmas presents and her clothes and even my brother's clothes and toys driving around in her car they knock on the door he answers the door her phone's not being answered and um you know she's not there and they say, oh, you know, we're, we're really sorry to bother you. But if you could find if you could if you see the woman of the house, please, could you get her to contact us? And they give him a calling card when he's got a previous conviction and has assaulted the woman who owns the house. And, you know, then they leave and they leave 24 hours for him to run. And she's dead feet from the door. I mean, this to me. How can that be possible? And how are we even trying to convince anyone that further training is needed after such an event how is that possible the 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 police and the whole system you know need real training on the understanding of this coercive control this this pattern of behavior that that needs to be illuminated and highlighted and you know real education to be brought to their awareness if they're to protect the public because that's just um unforgivable to be honest Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island, where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It is. And you brought up your brother also being put at risk. He was 15, Mm -hmm. was he 15 years old at the time? Yes, he was. Yes. So he was at at the home address too. And there was another call that your mother made and it was classified as a burglary, even though he had gotten into her house and stolen her medication and he was a high risk perpetrator. And that again is something that is so confounding of how in the knowledge And they did know at the time that he was a convicted killer and they did know that he had assaulted her previously and she had alleged a sexual assault too. And yet it was downgraded. And it's all these missed opportunities, actually, isn't it? It's not just one thing. It's all the missed opportunities and believing him over her and the lack of professional curiosity that there seems to have been of just complete blinkers on of what your mum's needs were, and she was at risk, but him being able to somehow finagle his way into not just her life, but also Osage the police 
and to keep them at bay, even though he was a convicted perpetrator. And I, I still struggle very much with your mother's case. And I was involved in the review way back when, and I've just been revisiting the case papers. But when you have a case that's just so obvious, that's so overt in terms of here's a woman who was really at risk, who was doing all the right things, was calling the police, trying to get that help, and yet she was failed. And I think your your uncle actually said, I just want to quote what your uncle said at the time, because, of course, you were all very upset about what happened. It wasn't just what happened. It was also thereafter when there was meant to be an inquiry into what went on and what went wrong, and you all felt terribly let down, which we will get to, but because I want you to just to explain a little bit more about that. But your uncle said, this man had killed a woman before. He had already gone to prison for assaulting Maria, yet when she called for help and they didn't provide it, they then turned off her panic alarm at a crucial time when Maria needed it most. And at one point, when police officers were told to find her because of growing concerns, her door was opened by her killer and they gave him a calling card to pass on to her. What kind of protection is that? That's not protection. That's that's actually, you know, um, what's it? What is it called when you're kind of you're 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 actually involved in the murder, virtually? Complicit. I mean, like, you're complicit. You're complicit with that with that event, and um, exactly that. What you've said is that it, it wasn't. See, in some cases, there is a blurred line. He was a boyfriend. There was this this misunderstanding. There's there's tr- drunk behavior but you know and there's like a real emotional kind of blurring of the lines of of where people have done what but this was a cold calculated killer and if it hadn't been my mother it would have been another woman because he knocked on the door apparently the night before he killed my mother and uh, spoke to the next door neighbor saying oh I heard that your your mother's died I'm really sorry to hear that if you need to talk let me know and gave her a bottle of wine and so this person should never have been let out of prison in the first place. How was someone of his low caliber even allowed out of jail? What psychological assessment was done? Yeah, that's a very good question because his history, as we know, was that he killed his former partner in Germany, a woman called Sabine Rappold, and he used a piece of rope and and killed her with that. He strangled her. And that was in 1993. And he served 15 years and he came to the UK, which is when he met your mother. Now, there was no join up or no risk management for when he landed in the UK, which is a big problem. But when your mo- as soon as your mum reported, there should have been alarm bells ringing. And his history was known. You mentioned PNC, Police National Computer, his history yes. was on there that he had killed a former partner. Now, that in and of itself should have been a big red flag. And the minute your mum called for help, that should have been an immediate risk assessment, immediate risk management. But as you said, those alarm bells just were not ringing. And it sounds to me that piece of information you just shared of him knocking on another woman's door, he had a sense of understanding vulnerability and being able to finagle his way into women's lives and target them and was, of course, a very dangerous man. He's now a serial killer, actually, and there may well be other women in between that we just don't know about. 
too true absolutely and you know it was it was completely intentional and also with this energy uh, I would like to say that there's there's no there's no remorse there's no remorse when I had to face him in the court he he I think he pleaded uh, psychological issues which no shit uh, however you know um, this was someone who, who really prayed on on the vulnerable and 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 it was exceptionally intentional and i did not experience or see any remorse and uh this is just confounding to me you know how someone can, can even be like that do you think each time when he was interacting with the police do you think he came across to them as as plausible and that they just believed his narrative over the history and over what your mum was saying. Do you think that that was going on to a degree? I do, because he was he was very calculated, so he knew what to say. He was, imagine, this is someone that's been, I think she was dead for quite a while, while he was driving the car, emptying the bank accounts. You know, he was very confident, cooking in the house. Um, and then he he was even given a calling card and was still there 24 hours later. So this is someone that's, really kind of not really got a conscience about what he's doing there was not particularly I don't I don't see how someone can feel fear or guilt if they're there still continuing as if normal I just yeah it's it's absolutely dumbfounding yes I think that's a very interesting observation actually the fact that he stayed there the fact that he was just conducting himself as normal in inverted commas and was confident enough to do so and to not show any remorse or not to have, yeah, no yeah. empathy, no remorse to carry on that facade, even though the police were knocking on the door actually multiple times and your brother was there too. And that's where, again, a real risk to your brother, he could have been killed. What if he had discovered your mother's body? What if he had challenged Mark Shivers in any way? There was a very serious risk to his safety as well. Oh, 100%, you know. And, and I'm just bored of the whole we haven't got the funds to give the police the training. At the moment, with that attitude, the system is the perpetrator. It's a simple shift that needs to happen. Officers need to know that they can't learn these things online. You know, feelings, intuition, empathy, interaction, reading body language, understanding tonality of someone and the intention and having that visceral connection to your own process of reading people is so important in this job when my mother was killed as far as I'm aware burglary was the first priority of response so item goes missing culprit needs catching something needs retrieving you have something tangible with this it's 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 a lot more complex. And so the training requires another level of consciousness, another level of awareness and competency and heart. And until officers are given that job, these patterns are going to continue to play out. And it doesn't need to. It just, you know, at the end of the day, we all know that the government could fund this and that some of the forces already have been funded and coercive control, I think the arrests went up by 41%. I think domestic abuse is 5.5 million a year. And it, um, I think the training costs that, but actually the, the destructive nature of domestic abuse is costing uh, 66 billion. I mean, 
when are we going to realize that human life is the fundamental priority? You know, protecting life and essentially Absolutely. women. And it's just saddening because obviously the, the level of therapy that my brother and I have had to have in order to make peace, that's another, you know, cost and and the trauma in the world that holds us apart from one another and the lack of ability to be able to trust again you know the journey that one has to go on and so prevention is the cure and the responsibility response ability the ability to respond you know appropriately lies with the police and lies with the system honoring the domestic abuse bill and making and acknowledging those amendments it's a simple shift but it will change this world for the better. Yeah, so let's unpick some of the things you've said there because there are so many important points that you made. I, I think the first point that you made about, you know, the job that the police do is so much more than just attending, and I'm going to say the I word, the incident. You know, and that word, the incident, mm -hmm. means that they're already blinkered, right? This is a one-off thing rather than they have to think yeah. this is a pattern of behaviour. But they're, they're attending your yes. mother's address a number of times because she's called them a number of times. And you mentioned they need to look at the big picture, everything that's happened, tonality, how someone's interacting with them, not necessarily what they're saying. It might be something they're not saying. If they've called the police for help and then they're not answering questions and they're looking through the door just through a gap, well, perhaps the perpetrator is there. And therefore, you have to make a different set of decisions if you think the perpetrator is in the address and she's already called multiple times, he's already broken in once, what's the likelihood he's in there and therefore she's not able to speak? And you have to make those decisions in the moment rather than just, I'm attending a burglary, I'm going to find out what was stolen, then I'm going to try and retrieve it. And in fact, one of the times she called was about her medication being taken. So it wasn't even, you know, a normal script for a burglary. For a burglary, you go into a house and you want high value goods that are easy to take. You don't want someone to be present. It's rare for, for medication to be stolen, but this was a deliberate targeting of the thing that she depended on, which was her medication. But it was just downgraded rather than the whole pattern being seen. This is one of many things, and this is something yeah. that mattered to her that wasn't seen as part of his whole pattern of behaviour. It just, for me, it's, I, I just don't get it. Like, I see the, the lack of common sense, you know, like when someone's doing that, stealing someone's medication, which is like essentially something that balances their well-being, or at least is supposed to, and uh, to have that taken, that shows such coercive control, such deep manipulation and, you know, really wanting to kind of pull the carpet from under someone. If you're stealing an object that's of high net worth, maybe you're needing that to survive for something else. But this is like to really, really hurt that person in particular. You know, you are, you are, yeah, just that's playing with someone's mental health. That's deep psychological distress you're putting someone under. That's not just stealing something that's high that's worth something that you can do something with this is a deeper issue and the police yeah they, they, you know I remember hearing my mother in the recordings when I was in the inquest which we only got because of human rights article 2 right to life apparently we were lucky to get an, a, 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 
uh, an inquest, can you believe? And yet no one was really held accountable. However, people did have to speak and they were at least put in a position of some form of accountability for a, a moment. And I heard my mother say on one of the recordings when I heard you say about her call being downgraded, that she's being diplomatic because she's aware, now aware of his past. And they still didn't take that seriously because she wasn't screaming and crying because she was really trying to reach them on the level. I need help. I'm scared because of this person and because of their past and being diplomatic. And it's like, gosh, what does someone have to do to get their attention? I think that's a really important point. When I work with clients and certainly murders that I have to review, you see a situation where you mentioned being diplomatic, which is trying to convey what's going on. She's trying to risk manage him, but trying to convey. And sometimes people will be calm in that conveyance of the message. The other end of the extreme might be somebody being terrified, panicked, hysterical, screaming, and they're not equally taken seriously because they are acting hysterically. Therefore, I always find it very difficult because the honest truth is women can't win. Whichever way you go of trying to risk manage and trying to convey what's happening, you're judged. And again, it goes back to what you said. It's the common sense part that's missing. If you look at the whole context of the behavior, if you look at everything that's going on and you ask a different set of questions and it starts to make sense. But one thing that really stood out to me with your mother's case, and sadly, there are many things that just still make me angry, just revisiting the case papers and just what was said and what was done. But on the December the 13th, your mother had contacted police again and she had sounded strange on the phone. And the police believed, Essex police believed that Shivers might actually be there with her when she was making the call, but they decide to visit her. She doesn't let them into the house, but they, through the gap in the door, they push through their notebook and they ask her to sign it, to sign off any further action on the case, even though they suspected he was there. And your mother had no choice. She signed the notebook. They then closed the case. That was the last time she was seen alive. I find that incredibly difficult because it talks to everything that we're saying about the common sense, the lack of professional curiosity, the, the tonality, the seeing her behaviour in the context of everything that's going on and not thinking about his behaviour and what he may be doing behind the scenes. Mm, exactly. And it, it just goes to show you that it's just a tick box exercise. We've been there. We did our job. That's it. It, it, it kind of it insinuates the shirking of any real care or responsibility, you know, or, or as I've said previously, lack of heart in the job. And, you know, we can't afford to have people that are supposed to protect us with that attitude and that, that lack of that neglectful conduct. That's, that's just not acceptable. And as I've said again, you know, unless the system acknowledges the, the domestic abuse bill, I see them as the per I see it as the perpetrator because it's it's we are aware of the patterns. We can break that pattern. We can honor women. We can put people's lives before profit. So let's do that. Simple. It really is that simple when you break it down. It's simple in its well the simplicity is someone's calling the police for help because they're scared. 
the duty on the police is then to attend or then to ask the right set of questions about what's happening, that totality, and then to respond appropriately. You know, when I was in the police, Celia, I was, I was used to say, well, if it were your mother or your sister or, or your partner, what would you find acceptable? But I don't even see why we should have to put it in that context. Why isn't it just it's a human being who needs help? Why is it that gender and sex gets in the way of that, that there's a set of judgments that are then made? And in my professional experience, women don't call the police just for the hell of it. They call because they need help, safety, and they need protection. And yet the questions, the right questions are not being asked. And even afterwards, even after December the 13th, on December the 17th, officers were told to attend your mother's address again. And they didn't. They didn't attend. No. Yeah, on the 18th, they were told officer, to attend. Yeah. Go on. Well, I think it was one particular officer didn't go because she was scared. You know, what does that tell you? That's exactly right. That tells you everything about the level of dangerousness of this perpetrator. And I've seen that in many cases too. In the Victoria Climbier case, a lot of social services and police didn't want to attend because they were scared. Now, if you've got professionals being scared, imagine what that takes for your mum and others to call the police to try and get that help, knowing fully well they're putting themselves in danger by calling for help. And it was finally on yeah. the 18th, well, it was a domestic violence officer who then became concerned for your mum. And on the 18th, there was another door knock and he answers the door, but yet they take no steps to actually search the property and they left the house asking him Absolutely. to tell her that they had called. I still exactly. find that just incredulous. I, 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 <laughs> I just, if you would put this in a movie and to give me the script, I would literally say, you need to rein it back. This is absolutely ridiculous. You know, this is a bit too far-fetched. But sadly, that's, that's the truth of the matter. It is absolutely ridiculous. And I just really want to acknowledge my mother's courage because, you know, on average, it takes 30 incidents before a victim of domestic abuse will call the police. They're petrified. And the fact that she kept calling, the regardless of being let down, being led up the garden path, you know, she kept calling, she kept remaining calm, she kept doing her best to respond. And, um, you know, I just, what that must have taken for her to hold her nerve. And keep yeah, trying. I just, it's my, and to keep trying and to still be let down by the people, the system that is supposed to protect like things have to change. If if this if this is anything to go by, this you know mum's case, and then all the other women that have been failed after with the similar pattern. I mean, who? What's it going to take? Seriously. Well, that's a very good question. I've been asking myself that a lot lately. Of how many women being murdered will it take? And yes, I agree with you. Your mother's courage and her bravery. Really, people overlook that. And they overlook what it means to pick up the phone when you keep getting a bad response and when you're not being believed, but she kept persevering. And that tells me everything about the risk and danger that she was facing. Okay, I'm jumping in here. You see, again, that tells me everything about the risk and danger that Maria was facing. And she knew that she was in real danger. She did everything right. 
Are you seeing another pattern with the cases that I've been analysing and deconstructing? The victims in particular doing everything they can to get help and the police officers' malaise and apathy in providing it. There's still much more to cover about Maria's case, so join me back in the intelligence cell with Celia next week. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrude. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.